Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, brought to you by Roast House Pub, one of Frederick's finest craft beer and culinary destinations, where great people come to drink amazing beer. Visit them to track their taps and menu at roasthousepub.com, or download the digital pour app to track what's on tap. This is episode 85, and I'm your host, Chris Sands. We're changing things up a little bit this week. I have someone in studio that's going to convince me that wine is worth drinking. Uh, Drew Baker from Old Westminster Winery is here to teach me about wine and teach me hopefully why I should stop neglecting wine as a beverage to consume. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on, Chris. It's You're a pleasure to be here. So I'll give the same disclaimer that I used to give to craft spirits that if I grimace or make any kind of face, it has nothing to do with the quality of your product. It's just that I do not drink wine. Um, I do drink spirits now, so you very well could be the person that converts me to also adding wine. I, into I feel my... pretty good about my chances. <laughs> so now your uh, your winery is a well. Actually, first let's start about how did you get into wine yourself? Because you you were one of the founders yes. with the rest of your family. Correct. So what got you into wine? So it it was a journey, but uh, it really all started as a a crazy pipe dream to put my family farm back to work and uh, to grow an agricultural commodity and to make a product uh, that we were proud of and enjoyed and happy to share with with people. And uh, the idea of uh, planting a vineyard and making wines that were sort of uh, true to a particular place and, uh, and, and delicious to, to our minds, um, you know, was 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 obviously uh, compelling and intriguing and uh, and that's that's what we set out to do nine years ago so what was how long had your so w- was there a period of time where the farm wasn't a working farm yeah sure and what, yeah. what was it what was the farming done so on it before so then? so for about a hundred years uh old, West, old westminster winery was old westminster nurseries okay uh, and ironically enough it was primarily a juniper farm <laughs> uh, and uh, and the Juniper Farm, they went out of business in the early 90s. And then there was a gap uh, until 1999 uh, when my family uh, uh, moved on to the land. Uh, and then um, myself, my sisters, uh, Lisa and Ashley, who are you know active owners and managers with me. One is the winemaker and one's our general manager. And uh, so, so we had uh, moved away from, uh, for college. And then my parents were sort of in this... Uh, uh, stage, uh, empty nester stage, where they said, okay, well, what are we doing with this place? And uh, that's when we started kicking the tires on on uh, a plethora of ideas and, and, and frankly, quickly narrowed down to uh, to, to wine. And, uh, and then it was a function of feasibility, right? Like, do we have the site? Do we have the skills uh, to, to both farm and, and produce and, frankly, you know, market and sell, uh, you know, Maryland wines that we're proud of? So they did they... Was the farm purchased with the thought at all of it becoming a winery? They just wanted to have a farm? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, in the early days, my sisters, you know, we rode horses and dirt bikes and all and this sort of thing. Uh, And then, uh, you know, at the time I was 12, my sisters were both younger than me. So uh, wine wasn't, you know, at the forefront quite yet. Um, 
but yeah, when uh, yeah in two thousand nine is is when we started getting serious about the whole idea. And um, at the time, I was in school personally for, for, for business management, not really sure what I wanted to do, but um, I'll call it uh, value-added farming. Growing something and making something from it uh, was, was really intriguing to me. My sister, Lisa Hinton, who's our winemaker, was in school for chemistry. And uh, my youngest sister, Ashley, was uh, a sophomore in college at the time uh, studying marketing. So we kind of looked at each other and, uh, and all collectively said, you know, if you're in, I'm in. Yeah, Let's- we have every Right. Yeah, exactly. And it's just a function of kind of putting our skill sets together. And again, it it was looking back, it was kind of crazy. And it's amazing to me uh, that, you know, we are where we are. And it's frankly gone as well as it has. Um, But you know, it's been really fun and rewarding. So did your parents just want to farm as a hobby? Is that or they just wanted to like, and the reason I ask because my grandfather had part when when my mother was in, I think, uh, as a teenager, my grandparents bought a farm. And it was mm-hmm. because my grandfather wanted to farm as a hobby, which just seems like a ridiculous thing to want to do as a hobby because he essentially just gave himself an unpaid second full-time job because, oh, he, he raised cattle just for the f- like family. They sure. would butcher a cow once a year, and then he raised some corn, like grew corn and some other stuff. But like it wasn't a working farm, it was a hobby farm. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I guess, you know, the short answer is, you know, farming is is really rewarding. And, um, you know, the idea of kind of, of, of working hard, even, it is, even if it is afternoons and weekends, and, uh, you know, at the end of the year, you know, you have this, this cow that you've cared for all year, and, and it turns into, you know, dinner on the table is, is, is kind of, it, it, it's a cool full circle kind yeah. of experience. Um, but, but I think uh, the, the other thing that really intrigued my parents early on was, was uh, you know, working with their kids and, and, yeah. and building sort of a legacy type business that we would, you know, that we would all be you know grow grow to be proud of yeah i think if um if that farm was anywhere near here i'd probably be trying to convince my grandparents to turn it into a farm brewery or something sure. but yeah absolutely now i think yeah. it just it, they lease out the land and it's yeah. just corn yeah not nearly as exciting <laughs> yeah so basically uh easter weekend 2011 we planted our first 7600 grapevines uh on the farm and it's been a hundred miles an hour ever since it's a uh, lot of grapes yeah yeah so um you know that was uh, easter weekend 2011 uh we've subsequently you know expanded to 10,000 vines on the farm it's pretty densely planted covers uh, eight acres uh we also have uh, a, a wine production facility and a tasting room on the farm so we grow produce bottle and sell all on the farm which is really cool kind of like full circle and uh, you know we we welcome folks out to the farm uh, you know every weekend to sort of uh, you know connect with the land through a glass of wine so what did the leading up to opening the winery and growing did you do a lot of research sure. to plan, or was it trial and error throughout? Not a lot of trial and error. Um, there's there's some element of trial and error. Like I can look back and you know, uh, a, as an example, we planted uh, some Merlot and Sauvignon Blanc in 2011. Uh, neither of which we have anymore. Uh, you know, in 2013, we had this polar vortex. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I, d- I remember t- that. So every year they come up with some new creative term to call. Yes. What was it this year? It was the. Clone, cy- something cyclone or bomb, bomb cyclone. cyclone yeah 
<laughs> well, that was the year of the polar vortex, and it wreaked havoc on those two varieties. So we ended up replanting with uh, with Albarino and Muscat. Albarino is uh, the first wine that we'll be trying today, and uh, these are grapes grown on our farm, and they they do particularly well in on our soils uh, and in our climate. So is that one of the biggest deciding factors, like yeah. what the nutrients in the soil? naturally and then the, obviously the climate has sure it. yeah sure so you had kind of asked like what kind of feasibility do, did we do and and it was really for us all about finding you know that that three-way intersection between the the grape varieties um you know the soil climatic conditions and then the styles of wine that we enjoyed to drink and 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 the magic kind of resides where those where those things come together and uh so in our initial planting we planted six varieties um three reds and three whites and these were the varieties that both we enjoyed and, and we had reason to believe would do well there uh, and like I said um, four out of those six are a success story uh, and two were not and we subsequently ripped those out and replanted those vineyards in 2013. So how many of the varieties that like beforehand that you enjoyed the most are you able to produce now? Um of like different and and maybe we just need to I, I, I could be a completely stupid question no it's and a, it's a okay. great question yeah so so i mean I, the 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 short answer is most of them because i've really come to love you know what what we're doing and, okay. and what we're able to do here um broadly are there varieties of and styles of wine produced in other places in the world uh, that i really enjoy and that we can't do in maryland Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I um, guess that's more of what I would... Yeah, for sure. Um, but similarly, uh, there are styles of wine that we produce here that in those places are, are precluded because of different environmental conditions. You can imagine, you know, wine, I think more than anything else on earth... The, the magic of wine is that uh, when when done uh, naturally and transparently, it, it reflects a time and a place unlike anything else. Um, and, and that's what I think has captivated humans by it for so long. Um, and and uh, the styles of wine that we produce in Maryland are, are uh, you know, our effort is for them to reflect this place and to be unique to here um, so that, you know, this, this particular style uh, – grown and produced anywhere else in the world would be different. And that's kind of the fun and, and the mystery of it. Yeah. Cause I get that. That does make it a unique product because like in beer, there are definitely variances in the aroma and flavor that you'll get in hops from crop to crop, but brewers do their best to change the recipe, use different amounts to try to replicate the, the same profile year to year. But from what I understand, wine, it's just whatever happens to the grapes that year, that's what that wine's going to taste like. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It reflects time and place and also the human element, just like beer and other beverages as well. Um, but but I think that uh, in, in a lot of ways, I think, you know, to oversimplify a r really complex, uh, you know, groups of products, wine and beer, I think beer in, in a lot of ways is 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 very much, uh, you know, recipe driven. And there is, is no doubt, uh, you know, variation in ingredient. But I, I would say that wine is. Uh, is or certainly ought to be much more ingredient driven. It's it's just a, a simple transformation of for, of sugars to alcohol, and otherwise there there should only be a singular ingredient in the bottle. Yeah. Whereas um, brewers can uh, 
implement different techniques or ch- tweaking recipes to get a consistent uh, pro- tasting profile from sure. year to year. But you have two two ingredients, and yeah, th- w- what happens is what's going to happen. Sure, and and that you know, in in let's call it uh, in corporate wine. Uh, there are there are no doubt plenty of other additives and 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 frankly manipulation or a heavy winemaker's hand to create a consistent product. Um, however, you know that is not our approach. Our approach is to uh, you know celebrate vintage variation, which is to say you know this growing season is different than the next, and we want the wine to reflect that. We're not trying to create the exact same thing every time. We want it to be you know uniformly delicious. Uh, but beyond that, uh, to have a, to have a story. So, of the wines you've made since you started, what year and which kind has been your absolute favorite? Cool. Well, the wine that we're going to start off with today, I'm, I'm, we're putting our best foot forward here. This, I'm particularly <laughs> excited about this. Uh, it's a grape variety called Albariño which is native to Northwest Spain. Uh, this is where it's believed to have evolved from. And, uh, and it grows particularly well here in the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, reason being, that Northwest corner of, Stain, uh, of Spain, Riospicius, where Albariño is most famously grown, is the wettest corner of Spain. And they have a really heavy uh, maritime influence uh, and, and a fair amount of rain throughout the growing season. So the grape variety kind of evolved to have thick skins and high acidity, which are natural defenses against mold and mildew and sort of their self-preservation mechanisms. And here in the mid-Atlantic, where we do have a fair amount of mid-season rain as well, uh, these defense mechanisms are really important. And this particular wine, to our minds, really yields uh, great grapes fit for sparkling wines. Um, So we have a naturally sparkling Albarino here to taste. Uh, Nice. Well, why don't you pour some of that while I take a quick second to thank our sponsors. Sounds great. So first, thank you to Roast House Pub, our first and longest sponsor, where they have amazing beer dinners. This month will be Monoxy Brewing Company, which I, I don't have the menu yet, but as always, Nico, Chef Nico will produce an amazing lineup of beer and wine. I mean, beer pairings with the courses. He already had me thinking nothing but wine. Um, and then also, uh, once again, the Kushwa Brewing will be returning for Mom's Spaghetti Dinner Night. They defeated Old Mother last month and are still the reigning champions. So, and also there are still a couple, um, cards left for the VIPA cards. So send an email to Chris at newspost.com and you can grab one of the last few and then we'll be sending out information about what you can get with those cards and the special, um, program. And now we have a special new supporting sponsor, Craft Beer Alliance Packaging Solutions. So I want to thank them. Craft Alliance Packaging Solutions has been serving the craft beverage industry since 2012 and prides itself in helping their customers excel in a constantly growing industry from concept to cooler. CAPS offers solutions to your packaging needs, providing mobile bottling services, technical support, keg repair, rental bright tanks, and much more. It is their goal to help you grow your brand and your business and make your product stand out. Be different, look different. For more information, visit capsbottles.com at C A P S 
B-O-T-T-L-E-S dot com. So once again, thank you, Roast House Pub and Craft Alliance Packaging Solutions for helping keep the Uncapped podcast going. It drew. So what is so what was the name of this again? So the grape variety is Albarino, and the method here has a couple of different names. The ancestral method, Petillon Naturale, or Pet Nat, which literally just translates to naturally sparkling. So basically, this is a naturally sparkling Albarino. Um, so what does that mean? How is it made, right? So these grapes are handpicked in our vineyard. This is grown in our home vineyard, so right on the family farm. Uh, the grapes are then uh, pressed in a giant press to extract the juice to a tank. And then once in that tank, uh, we allow it to rest until it begins to spontaneously ferment. So we don't add any lab-cultured yeast. Uh, this is a wild fermentation. We also don't add any nutrients or fining agents, etc. So it spontaneously ferments. And then uh, when this wine uh, reaches, uh, for the beer nerds out there, about 10.04 density or about 98% of the way through fermentation, we bottle under a crown cap. And uh, in the bottle, the fermentation completes and we capture the CO2 and it's essentially oh. bottle conditioned. So um, by contrast to uh, the champagne method or method champenois, uh, which uh, this, this ancestral method predates by several hundred years, uh, but, but the champagne method sort of came in and ousted the ancestral method uh, a millennia ago uh, be- when uh, we realized that you have so much more control when you allow a fermentation to complete. Uh, and then you can come back and, and, and redose with sugar and yeast and have a very precise fermentation. Um, but the magic of this process is the, the winemaker has no fingerprints on it. It's really a raw reflection whatever of the happens, vineyard. Uh, it's whatever happens, happens. And there's bottle variation, and, and um, you know, it's not blended, fined, filtered. It, you know, the lees are still in the bottom of the bottle. And, uh, you know, it's very much alive. And, that's cool. And that is the, the, the cool aspect of it. So. And I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to correct you, but I believe it's pronounced champagne. <laughs> At least that's how I've heard it pronounced. Champenois <laughs> would be the, uh, yeah, <laughs> method champenois. <laughs> Actually, what it, that was a, uh, I think a Saturday Night Live skit where they always refer to it as champagne <laughs> or something. So, in of um, styles of beer, mm-hmm. are there any that you would say are close to wine? It, you know, it, de- it 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 depends what kind of wine, and uh, you know, like like beer is stylistically all over the map. Wines also can be. Um, so, so I would say if you were looking to draw a correlation to this wine, particularly, I think, you know, the closest thing that you would find to it would be a wild fermented cider. Yeah. Or uh, even to some sours, mm-hmm. like that's what I was thinking. It's got really bracing acidity. Yeah. Cause it, uh, you always, I always hear, um, the acidity talked about with wine. So that's and, what had me think that maybe the like wines are closer size i really like this actually. yeah this this has you know acidity in spades no doubt and the grapes were harvested early um first week of september with that in mind um this is only 11 percent abv which on the wine spectrum is quite low and uh, again we were looking for something that's really bright fresh nice natural acidity uh, i will also note that 
this has about two atmospheres of pressure in the bottle, so it's only about half the carbonation level of champagne, uh, champagne. And, um, <laughs> and, and the reason there, uh, you know, that's just true to the historic nature of this style. Um, but, but it creates something that's a little, that it's petalant. It's, uh, you know, kind of goes still in the glass, but then when you taste it, it dances. Yeah. Uh, this is really good. It's, it, 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 it's only a little prickly on the tongue. Mm-hmm. It's like the subtle. So, um, you know, in, in pairings, uh, wine and food pairings, um, which I, I enjoy generally talking about, uh, with this wine, I, I, I love this, this concept that what grows together goes together. And here, uh, both in Rias Baixas in northwest Spain and, and here in, in the Chesapeake Bay uh, watershed, there is a heavy influence uh, from uh, uh, fair from the sea. And I think that uh, this particular variety and uh, more specifically, this style really goes well with, uh, you know, anything from the Chesapeake Bay. You can kind of imagine this with, you know, uh, with, uh, ro- with rockfish or even oysters on the half shell. Um, it's, it's really a, a match made in heaven. That was really good. I really like that. So already, what you're you're batting a uh, thousand one that, one so, out of so four so ju- far. Right. <laughs> cool. So do we just go into the next? Yeah, we may as well. All right. So uh, next up, I'll I'll just kind of give you an overview of the next three wines, which have uh, a thematic. Uh, similarity between them which is uh we're calling these next three wines our our lineup of rosé rarities so we had this crazy idea to um really explore sort of to challenge the boundaries of what is rosé and that's what we hoped to do with this lineup that i'm going to share with you these are uh newly released wines uh just this last week wow and um and and what we have is three very stylistically distinct uh, takes on rosé. I, I love the the labeling where it's just subtly different. It, it, the same style, but a subtle different in the lineup of flowers on it. Thank you. Yeah. So a good friend of mine actually did all of the uh, illustrations on the art. But yeah, that was we wanted something that kind of had a commonality, a thread, but also uh, just like uh, the color and profile of the wine, the label sort of spoke to those variations as well. Um, so I'll go ahead and pour uh, number one for us. Um, so uh, so number one is uh, essentially it's um, oops sorry about that. This is uh, a, a blend which is uh, two thirds uh, Syrah uh, with just with nearly one third uh, Chambersin and a splash of Malbec. Uh, and then this wine is uh, produced in the uh, Seigne method, uh, which is French for to bleed, which basically means uh, in, a, in, a, in a tank, uh, in a fermentation tank, you have, you know, you, you fill it with uh, red grapes. And in the tank, you have uh, uh, must, which is to say juice, uh, seeds, skins, pulp, etc. Uh, and we open the bottom valve and then drain off some of the juice after just a couple of hours of skin contact. So it has a really nice light color. And what we've bled off goes to another stainless tank, uh, again, to spontaneously ferment with wild yeast. And then this is a finished product aged for just six months. Um, the idea behind this wine is that it's really bright, fresh, lots of fruit, really aromatic. And, uh, you know, just this is this is sort of your um, your more typically more uh, stylistically true rosé. 
also I like. So I I think maybe what has changed in my palate where I can stop making or making comments about not liking wine is that I enjoy sour beer or sours much more now or higher acidity. Whereas before all I would ever drink were super hoppy beers. And then I just stopped even trying wine at all. My, my wife is a wine drinker. Um, but I like this. This is good. It's not. And I think maybe too, a lot of wines I tried were super sweet before, but none of these were of these two. They're not. Like there's sweetness there, but it's not over the it's, top. It's from the it's it's the fruit that's sort of kind of talking. Uh, in these wines, there are uh, no fermentable sugars, so these would be considered dry wines. Uh, though there is a perception of fruit, um, you know, it's not it's not full of unfermented sugar. Yeah, I like that. So the what um, percentage? of wines are grown on, I, not wines, grapes are grown at the farm that you use. And because I, I assume for some of them, like, I, can you grow Malbec? Or what kind of grapes are Malbec? Or is that the name of the grape? Yep. Is Malbec it all, is a okay. variety of grapes. So every time sure there's... grow that in Maryland. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I thought that absolutely. Was, for some reason, I thought that was only in some other part of the no, world. So, so Malbec is, is grown um, around the world, actually. So it's native to southwest uh, France, uh, but it, it's most famously, you know, here in, in 2018, grown in uh, Argentina. That's yeah. where most people, immediately your mind yeah, goes there. Yeah, that's all there in uh, Australia, maybe? Are there a lot of so, Malbec? Yeah, it's grown really in, in uh, around the world. Um, but Argentina has has sort of clung to this variety okay. as their national grape, and they're kind of all in on it. And uh, they're also the largest producing country of it. So there's just lots of Malbec gotcha. coming out of Argentina. However, it's not, in fact, native to there at all. Oh, that's um, funny. Yeah. Too. <laughs> so mm-hmm, yeah. So uh, most of the varieties of grapes that we know and love come from uh, our, our Vitis vinifera in descent, which is to say um, European. Uh, so all of these grapes basically are native to Europe or more specifically like ancient Mesopotamia. And uh, throughout human history, they've been taken and propagated all around the world. Um, but none of the grape varieties that we really know and love are, are, are native outside of, outside of really Central Europe. Okay. So do you purchase any juice that you use or is it all? Nope, all... we do not. Yeah. So everything, uh, we always start with grapes and uh, everything that we produce is also Maryland grown. Uh, awesome. So we're not importing either. Um, however, uh, on our home vineyard, we yield about one third of our production. So okay. so uh, a give or take, depending on uh, climatic conditions and the season, uh, give or take uh, one third of our annual production is, is grown and produced on site and then we also work with uh, other farmers under contract uh, where we where we manage the vineyards and take the grapes but we don't actually own the land oh, but you're still growing them mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. so is that you just don't have enough land to grow them or you just haven't gotten to the point where you've planted yeah that? so so uh, as a side note um, in December of 2016, we actually uh, settled on a 117-acre farm 
uh, in Montgomery County, Maryland, off okay. Burnt Hill Road. It's called Burnt Hill Farm. And uh, this is the new frontier. So we're going to be planting uh, 30,000 grapevines there uh, next spring, basically a year from today. And uh, that is where we're uh, intending to grow. And this is a beautiful site that we worked with uh, a world-renowned geologist to find. And uh, we're really going to be you know, expanding our operations considerably on this site. So is that close enough where like, there's really no difference in what you can grow between the two farms? Or so, is the soil makeup different enough where it will change? It's very different, okay. actually. So to kind of like oversimplify those differences, uh, our home vineyard, uh, where we where we began, uh, and where this Albarino that we tasted is sourced from, is a really great site for white wines. Uh, meaning nice gravelly soils, uh, a fair amount of clay content, um, you know, good water and nutritional availability, which is important for aromatic white wines. The new farm has super deep, well-drained gravelly soils it's lousy right so like to put it in like it's it's low vigor or low uh, nutrient available site which is going to be really good for getting red wines ripe you want you want wine uh, wine grapes to to work hard in the vineyard uh, because uh, ripening fruit is a reproductive mechanism. So I've heard it said like you want a grapevine to fear a little bit for its own existence so that <laughs> it sort of focuses on reproduction, which is ripening fruit. It's a self-preservation okay. mechanism. Yeah. So great wine is the result of a vine that's trying to preserve itself, basically. That's it. it seems like completely count, like for someone like me, it has absolutely no idea how to grow anything. Um, like I would think you just want to provide everything that the plant wants and needs yeah, to grow, yeah. but well, it's kind of amazing because like in commodity farming, like if you're growing, you know, when you're growing, uh, fruits and vegetables and things for sustenance, you do want it to have everything that it wants so that you have maximum yields. Yeah. Um, however, uh, with wine, you're actually not chasing maximum yields at all. You're chasing maximum flavor and concentration and too much yields, too much water availability, too much nutrition can actually kind of create grapevines that, you know, out of their abundance, don't focus on reproduction, and you end up with a dilution factor in the wines. Um, and and uh, so it's actually really important to control yields and to have grapevines that are sort of fit and work hard. So is it the the vines will grow more than the fruit grows sure. if, there, if there's too much water? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Yep. You'll have vines with that are, you know, that are overly vigorous and have lots of beautiful green leaves and are great to look at. Um, it's nothing for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's just not as ripe as that vine that is, that is smaller and maybe a little bit stressed and working really hard and sort of spending all of its energy on on self-preservation, which is to get this fruit ripe so that, like from an evolutionary standpoint, so that birds or other animals see fit to come and eat this flavorful, colorful, delicious fruit to go propagate that seed elsewhere. Like that's all a grapevine is hardwired yeah. to do. And then as winemakers, we kind of come alongside that natural process, work in tandem with it so as to sort of encourage that vine in that process of creating really flavorful fruit that we can then turn into great wine. So is that a struggle, like keeping animals from – is that a big problem? Sure, to... yeah. So in growing all of our fruit, yeah, I mean, we have to manage birds with nets and deer with fence. And, yeah, I mean, you can imagine that, I mean, we're growing really delicious, yeah. well-manicured fruit. So, yeah, animals are, are attracted to that, no doubt. So you have that problem, and then there are also, like, fungus or things that will attack the – 
sure. the vines sure. also and insects and yeah there's 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 no shortage of of considerations that, that we that we take into account as as farmers um, but you know again that's not unique to this place around yeah. the world depending on you know the habitat the climate etc you have different considerations but you really kind of have to you know that goes back to assessing and knowing your your place and and then how to how to farm accordingly so the you had said that there are some uh, varieties that will grow in this climate but not in others what are some of the ones that thrive here but don't do as well elsewhere sure well let's just go back to the example that we had um, of albarino here and i think that albarino here in the mid-atlantic and in other uh more marginal climates right um uh, yield exceptional wines. They like it here. Whereas in uh, really hot, dry Mediterranean climates, um, what will happen is is you'll you'll uh, achieve far higher levels of ripeness, which I think does this variety an, an injustice. I personally prefer this variety with lower alcohol and higher acidity. You can imagine as you get much riper, you gain way more sugar, uh, which equates to higher alcohol wines. And um, also, as the sugar increases, acidity decreases. Um, so you end up with wines that are more tropical, uh, ripe, you would call it, you know, sort of full-bodied. Uh, but in lacking acidity, it kind of loses that freshness and that vibrancy. Um, and then to contrast that to varieties that don't grow well here, I mean, a, an, an obvious example is Zinfandel. Uh, you know, Zinfandel produces like these really jammy, juicy, high alcohol, rich, ripe wines in hot, dry climates. But here, you won't achieve that ripeness, um, and, and then you'll end up with wines that are, that are really wimpy and, and just don't offer much interest. So, it, you know, again, it's about understanding sort of, and that's why different places throughout the world, you see different varieties becoming, you know, the trend just to sort of reflect the climate uh, there. Let's uh, yeah, try let's that next one. So this is what, number two? Yes, we're calling this number two. So number two is produced in a really interesting way. It's definitely a very it, very different aroma. Sure. So um, let's imagine that we started with, with number one, as I described it being made. Uh, and then at the end of this process, uh, on, on one hand, uh, you had number one. And then on the other hand, you, in, in a tank, you had a Syrah fermentation. So Syrah is a grape variety that's native to uh, south-ish central uh, France, um, but also can yield some really great wines here on the East Coast. It's really inky and black and ripe. Um, and then in the tank, um, at the end of fermentation some three weeks after it's all been macerating together in a tank, you open the bottom valve and you drain all of the free run wine, which is the wine that literally just runs out of that valve straight to barrel. And then what you're left with in the tank is these sopping wet skins. Um, and then we take number one and we shower it over that cap. You can imagine us just pumping it over like a shower and it drains through those sopping wet skins and out the bottom of the tank again. And in that process, it picks up a lot of color and tannin and texture. And that's what this wine has. So, so it's basically number one plus a rinse through a Syrah okay. cap, which gives it all of the guts that you're kind of, that you're experiencing. That's really good too. Uh, over 50%. I actually, I, th I think probably at this point I have to officially stop saying that I don't like wine. 
Good. <laughs> uh, we're, we're well on our way, and we, and we still have one more to go, which yeah. I think you may even enjoy the most. <laughs> um, so then after that cap wash that I had mentioned, uh, this goes to stainless steel barrel where it aged for 18 months. So uh, number one, only aged for six months. It's 2017 fruit. Uh, number two is 2016 fruit because it subsequently aged for a year and a half in, in stainless steel. So um, what is happening during that aging process? Well, uh, it depends on the vessel that the wine is aging in. Uh, so this, so the, the contrast between number two and number three, which I'll explain to you, is number three is produced just like number two, except that it aged in French oak barrels, okay. barriques, for, for that same 18 months. So, so the difference that's happening in that process will be really evident when tasting, you know, number two and then number yeah. three. So stainless steel is inert, meaning it doesn't breathe. Yeah. It's like a time capsule. Whereas a French oak barrel breathes, it's porous. So you have this micro-oxygenation effect, uh, which distilleries and breweries also really enjoy. Uh, and the wine is able to uh, interact with the air outside and to evolve, but not at a rate which would incur spoilage. Okay. In is... So when it's resting in stainless steel and not receiving any of the flavors or anything imparted from the wood and what what is the happening do- during that is that when it's f- fermenting or is that nope, when the fermentation it, that's is finished done? Okay. at this point yeah so um, what we are what you know there is basically we're preserving freshness in stainless steel uh, but what is in the bottom of the tank is lees which are the dead yeast cells the byproducts of the fermentation past uh, and we do what is called batonnage or stirring uh, where once a month we'll basically open the top of the stainless steel barrel and uh, we stick in a tool that we can shake around and we stir all of those lees up into some solution and these lees are really great because they gobble oxygen they preserve freshness they add texture to the wine uh, and a level of complexity that uh, that you that you just can't be achi- that can't be achieved on a quick turnaround okay mm-hmm. so it's the the yeast and stuff left it's uh, making it fuller bodied and then the adding to the flavor profile to for sure okay yep no doubt and then with the the barrel aging is that uh, like the same as when you're aging whiskeys and stuff where it's pulling out the um tannins and things like that are the same chemical changes happening as there is with spirits yeah sure um i will point out though that um we use uh, neutral barrels uh, or, or barrels that have been pre- previously used a couple of times for this style of wine uh, because we don't want to run it over with too much aromatization. So um, I think barrel aging really offers categorically two primary benefits. Uh, one is the aromatization, the adding, the influence of the wood on the beverage. The other is that microoxygenation or that breathing process. Um, and in this case, we wanted more of that microoxygenation than we do the aromatization because when matching a beverage to a barrel, I think it's important to match intensity. So if you're aging, you know, a, a bourbon, then then you want American oak, you want heavy toast, you want new wood because yeah. because you're you're trying to create something that is utterly massive in in flavor profile. Whereas a wine like this number 3 is far more delicate and I think you would run it over with that same heavy toast brand new okay. American oak wood. Do you you do use charred barrels for and maybe not you directly but like winemaker the 
overarching you. Yes. Um, use or at least lightly char to some level of char for some wines, right? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple different ways. Um, not everyone uses char ba- charred barrels. Um, some use water bent staves, etc. But uh, yes, charring is is quite common, um, but to a much lesser extent. So you'll see, you know, low to mild char, uh, as opposed to most, uh, you know, uh, spirits producers are going to be using he- a much heavier char. Yeah, like mid, usually mid to heavy char. Correct, correct. And then also, this, there's a big species of wood variation. So uh, in the spirits category, there's going to be a much more use of American white oak, um, which uh, just to over uh, to, to, to quickly qualify the difference between most uh, French oak that we use and American oak is that um, French oak has twice the grain density of American oak. Um, again, that's a generalization, but roughly twice. Yeah. Um, so what that means is that it aromatizes the wine much less. So okay. with, so with wider grain, there's a, there's a far more impact of the uh, wood profile on the beverage. So then in, I think you described like the flavor of that as being more delicate. And is that the, with spirits, because they are, um, I guess, Harsh is not the completely right adjective, but like a much more potent flavor and reaction because of the higher alcohol content. That's why they need the lower grain density. Absolutely. And then that's also carries through to wine. So, so though our wines are much more delicate in nature as a reflection of where we're growing them, um, there are wines made in the world that, that call for heavier toasted American oak. Uh, think wines from Portugal or Spain where there's endless sun, there's high alcohol, there's real ripeness. They're not also looking for subtlety and nuance. They're looking for, you know, that massive flavor profile. Uh, so there's a huge calling, uh, in, in those regions of the world where they they are exporting American oak because they're not looking for the subtlety and nuance that we are. Okay. Um, so yeah, it, I, I think no matter the beverage, it's about matching intensity. Not like, not unlike a, a food pairing with a beverage. It's like you're trying to match uh, light kinds. Yeah. Where if you have some like to match a IPA, you want to go with some str- like spicy or heavily spiced so that it th- they can complement each other instead of for overpowering sure. uh, one one. Absolutely. Cool. So uh, last but oops, last but not least. So this is number two. That all, is it, So is it the exact same process as number two, except it was put into um, French oak barrels? Yes. So, so quickly, the variation between number two and number three. Number three was uh, produced, basically started like number one, but was rinsed over a Cabernet Franc cap. So there's a different variation there. Uh, and then was subsequently aged in French oak for 18 months. Yeah, very different, but also good. And the wood shows. Think, yeah, and I think... Um, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of even like barrel aged beers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely, I like number two better, but this is all, still good. Sure. Yeah, sure. So I, I think the fun here for us and what we hope others find is the the variation right so like again going back to the the idea here was to create three products that are that are really delicious and have a story to tell but also kind of challenge the boundaries of what you kind of previously thought rosé was yeah. which is something that is simple that you don't think much about and i think here we have three products that are that are compelling and uh, you know are produced in an atypical way uh, and and delicious 
Well, I love how it, one I like anything that has a story. So I love how it like you you start with this, you tweak it a little bit to make number. You start with number one, tweak it a little bit, and make number two, and then change it up a little bit more and make number three. It's kind of like um, like breweries will make mix uh, twelve packs of um, like one beer and then like a deconstructed of the other ones. Like uh, Sierra Nevada did that with their IPA. They took the IPA and then they had single malt, I mean, single hopped versions of it along with the regular ones. So you could taste the difference of all the hops together and in, in by themselves. Sure. Or you can imagine taking the same base beer and then fruiting it with, with different fruit or at different volumes um, yeah. or, or different barrel aging techniques. And then, and then sort of lining these beers up and saying, you know, how cool is this? We started with the same base and we yielded three different variations. They're all delicious, but wildly different. I like that you could definitely you like you get that barrel aged. Uh, oh yeah, like, the oak um, is front and center. Yeah, it's there, but it's not overwhelming. Yeah, it's- and just think with the oak profile here, these are neutral French oak barrels. Can you imagine how aggressive it might be if we had aged this in new American oak? So that's kind of going back to. I mean, it, you would taste nothing but wood. There would be no fruit there. Um, so yeah, this has that oak character, but in balance with you know, those strawberries and, and raspberries that really come through. Yeah, I, really, I, I don't know which one. Number one or number two. I, think, I can't decide which of yeah, those is my favorite. they're kind of like my like, kids, but number two is my jam. Yeah, I yeah. like number two, but I, I, I like number one a lot also. And like the the, um, the first one we yeah, tried the pet to. Nat. Yeah, that was really good. Um, and the cool thing is, is that I think, uh, you know, in the beer world, you're seeing lots of carryover from techniques that are traditionally used in wine uh, are bleeding in from the wild yeast fermentations to macerating on, uh, you know, different varieties of, of grape skins to aging in wine barrels, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really cool all the way down to the pet nat to the naturally sparkling. You're seeing a lot of this, uh, you know, carry through into cider and beer production, which I, I think sort of the blurring of of lines, uh, you know, is re, you know, I don't know. It energizes me. I love it, and uh, I'm I'm a big fan of of creating something that is unique and delicious and true to a place uh, and tells a story. But you know, you've you've never had something like it before. It's really cool. So how do is it a whole family affair for deciding what you're going to produce, or is it your sister takes the lead as the winemaker, or how how do you come up with the different products that you're going to make? Um, a, a, a plethora of ways, uh, but you know, it, you a, a lot of these products are sort of born at the lunch table when we sit around, and it's it is my sisters and I's, but we we really have a, a rock star team too, uh, several of which are also beer nerds. Uh, right. So we sit around and and just kind of brainstorm, um, you know, different products that 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 we would like to drink, and you know, and much of what we make, as I've said before, is it's a function of what would we want, and then hopefully others find it interesting as well. Um, but but when we sit down to the blending table and actually decide, you know, the percentages and how these wines are put together, it's uh, it's myself and my two sisters, and then we work with uh, with a consulting winemaker from uh, from France named Lucien, uh, who sits down with us, and he comes over twice a year, and uh, the four of us sit down and really you know get down to it and and put these wines together. So let's talk about canning wine. Yeah. Um, 
in I don't know is that a rare thing done or is it becoming we're the more first prevalent? winery uh, in the Mid Atlantic to do it. Uh, okay. To my knowledge, still are the only. Uh, so so yeah, it's it's um, you know canning was one of these things that uh, you know it it first happened in the 1980s and then it was quickly poo pooed as you know cheap and junk and yeah. who knows it probably was. Um, well, it, I think back then the the um, technology for lining the cans and it either wasn't there or wasn't as prevalent because even back then they they would say you like no one wanted to drink beer out of a can because it you would get a metallic taste or stuff from it now which isn't true anymore because of that i can't remember what kind of coating it is but all cans are coated on the inside to not impart any type of taste. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's one of those things, again, it, you know, it, it, it went away for decades and, uh, and, and now we're trying to bring it back. So, um, I think in the coming years, you're going to see it all over the place. Um, last November, uh, we canned for the first time, and it was just born of this idea that we want to take wines that are true to what we just tasted together, uh, to our philosophy, and and make it more accessible. So, you know, these bottles are really great when we're sitting around the table with glassware, taking our time. Um, but when you're out and about uh, at the pool, at the beach, hiking, camping, whatever you do for fun, um, you know, a 750 mil glass bottle and some stemware and a corkscrew is totally yeah. impractical. Um, so that's really where the can project was born. So we wanted to make something that's Maryland grown, naturally made, wild yeast, no fining, no filtration, no makeup, fun art and delicious. And, and that's, that's kind of where, how we got started. So have you, have you heard any of that same negative feedback about, um, the perception of it being cheap or wine doesn't belong in a can or has it been very well received? It's been really well received. And that's not to say that there aren't people that don't get it because there are, but that's true of anything. Um, but, but no, I mean, so our cans now it's, it's, we're just, they're distributed in 10 States, which is really crazy. You know, Maryland wine is being distributed in 10 other States like California and New York and South Carolina, et cetera. And, um, and, and for us going back, you know, when we, I remember when, when old Westminster was, was just that crazy pipe dream, we sat down and made a mission statement, which was to put Maryland wine on the map. And back then it was like hard to say with a straight face, you know, <laughs> you kind of sat around and you're like, this is crazy. Yeah. Um, and now full circle, you know, here we are in, in 2018 and it's like, we're putting together pallets of, of wine and sending it to California. And, uh, and for me, that is, uh, and, and for my sisters and our team, that is so rewarding to know that, that something is being made here uh, that is unique and delicious enough that it has a market elsewhere. So is it the exact same wines that you bottle also put into cans? Yeah, or is sure. it a different... Yeah, so it's line. it's it's diff- it's a different line in that it's not the exact same blend. Um, however, it's the same base components, okay. right? So like everything is is produced uh, to the same standards, and then we sit around the blending table and we put all of our wines together and we say, oh, you know what? I think this would be awesome in can, and this really needs to go under a natural cork and be aged. You know, so so depending on how the wine shows, you know, we try to match. We try to match uh, the style and what we think of that wine with the package. Are they the same alcohol content or are they lower? 
for the, they're, what they're, they're the same so so they're okay. not manipulated in any way just like any of our other products so uh you know the the alcohol by volume on our cans is anywhere from like you know 12 to 30 you know it's in that 12 range 12 okay. to 13 maybe 13 in a, in a hair at the high end so one can you're probably good yeah so a can <laughs> is 375 mil it's exactly a half bottle of wine okay. so it's a little bit bigger than 12 ounce can it's like 13 um so yeah it's two and a half traditional glasses of wine so yeah it's single serve and I, I wonder if um, do you feel like the the growing popularity of boxed wine kind of softens people's perception that good wine doesn't have to be in a bottle with a natural cork and the, the long list of pretentious yeah. things that people it's would no say. no doubt about it. So something that really just over the past handful of years has kind of boggled my mind is that there's really no product to, that I'm aware of like wine in that there is so much diversity of choice. You go into a, a liquor store and, and they can have, you know, a big shop can have thousands of SKUs of wine. However, they are all packaged without exception the exact same way 750 mil glass with cork or lookalite label and then some kind of capsule it's like amazing how little variation there is and uh and and then also how uh alternative packaging is you know the advantages that it might offer and that it doesn't affect quality and i feel like now uh consumers are open to this idea that i can have a really good product in alternative packaging and historically, that's been brand suicide, right? Like no winery would ever put their product in a bag and box because that's yeah. like that's just acknowledging that it's junk. Um, <laughs> however, there's really no reason for that to be true other than that's just what's always been done. Yeah. So we kind of really set out from the beginning and are intentional to put our best foot forward and say like, you know, what we can is like really good wine, like blind taste someone on it. Like they might poo poo it when they're tasting it in the light, but it's like, if, if anyone's like, Oh, you know, there's no way it's any good. It's like, I'll set up a blind tasting and, and pour out four wines and, and say, you know, please identify, you know, the loser in this bunch that came from the can, you know, it's really amazing. The quality of wine that's capable, you know, whether it be Tetra pack or bag and box or can, um, you know, and then, and then obviously 90% of our program is still in glass. So I think have a little more number one. Yeah, man. So, um, how many different varieties are you canning? So, uh, to date we've produced seven different varieties. In can uh, on June 19th, we're going to be doing our summer run. Uh, so we'll introduce four more. So part of what we're doing in the can, part of our vision for our canning project is that unlike our our, our bottle program, uh, we want it to be really fun and uh, you know no rules, just good natural Maryland wine. And um, you know so we're not actually looking to create sort of cornerstone, uh, you know quintessential traditional products. It's like every time we want it to be different. We want the art to be fun. We want the product to be delicious. Otherwise, you know, no holds bar. And uh, yeah, so we're going to be doing four new products again uh, in June. And that that's our plan going forward is every season to, you know, to, you know, really take a page out of what we love about the craft beer movement, which is how quickly it moves and how it, that experimental edge. And we want to exercise that in an industry, which I think has been totally um, paralyzed. Well, that's by what I was going to ask pretension. you. Is that, yes, um, <laughs> that I was going to ask you, is that very unique to wineries? Of course. Because I was going to say, like, that seems like, and you said it yourself, it's very much 
taking a, a look at the craft beer playbook yeah, and just saying, I don't care what you're making. I'm going to make what I want. I'm going to make something different. I'm going to put it in whatever heck package I want to. And yeah. So like just a fun, really quick story to highlight this. Uh, just last week, uh, my sister Lisa, who's our winemaker and I, we went down to Virginia to meet with our distributor. And uh, so we met with their whole sales team and we were sharing a bunch of wines that they're selling in both D.C. and Virginia for us. So you, you talk through the products, you empower them with information and stories so that they can go and represent your product better. Right. You got it. Um, there was another producer there it's, uh, for, that ha- uh, carried an Italian portfolio that was doing the same thing and uh, and, and poured and presented before we did did and offered. You know, they, they were re- they were pouring some fantastic wines, but, um, you know, traditional you know, with a capital T. And, uh, and then we got up there and it was really fun where we were just like, all right, well, we're going to contrast a little bit. This is going to be a little free flowing. We have some pet gnats. We have this rosé lineup. We have a carbonic Cab Franc. And then we have these four wines and cans that we're going to pour. And you could kind of see, you know, the, the, the Italian producer's mind like explode. And it's just like that for us was kind of rewarding because it's like, you know, these wines are fantastic. Like you can't argue with the quality. Um, you just really have to be open to, to the this idea that, you know, it, it, it's new, it's fresh. Um, it's something you haven't seen before. And, you know, I don't know if you're not down with that, then maybe it's not for you. Um, one of the things you, you've touched on multiple times was that all of the grapes are grown in Maryland. That seems, is that one of the largest debates or issues facing Maryland wineries right now? Cause that, yeah, I, so there's, not a, quite yeah, a, there's bit, not a lot but... of grapes going around. Um, so, like, I, I don't know the exact statistic today, but roughly half of the wine that is made by Maryland wineries isn't made from Maryland grapes, which I think is a, is a tragi- tragedy. And, and I don't have a solution for that as a whole industry tomorrow, other than we all need to start planting more grapes, which is what we're doing. And, uh, you know, but for us, we're going to grow at the pace of Maryland agriculture, because as I said about wine at the beginning, that I think the magic of it is that it reflects where it's grown. Um, So, you know, if it's not from here, then it's just not from here. And, um, you know, and you might as well drink it from a producer from wherever it came from. Um, So so for us, that is, uh, you know, that's part of being unique and true to this place. Um, And and no doubt it's a challenge even for us. And, um, you know, with this canning project, like, man, I would love to have like twice or 10 times as much production as we do so that we could really grow the operation. Because right now there's not a lot of other players in that space and there's tremendous opportunity for the wines that we're making. And I'm literally allocating to my distributors in Chicago and Boston uh, and saying like you can have one pallet and that's it because I don't have any more and I can't yeah. make any more because this is I all have, I grew yeah, yeah. Um, so you know we're trying to grow as fast as we can while maintaining uh, you know an integrity and uh, you know and and a trueness to place because yeah, I, I was talking to Kevin addicts last year at one point and it's funny like the other two industries that he represents, um, like both beer and spirits are fighting and clawing to remove regulations and um, have things loosened up. And he said one of the number one things that Maryland wineries want are is actually to increase a regulation where you want to up the percentage to be able to be called Maryland wine 
the percentage of Maryland grapes used in it. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think the key is just differentiation there. Um, yeah. In that where it's just like, you know, something that's grown and produced, or excuse me, something that's produced here but not grown here. It's like, I don't poo-poo that so long as, you know, it's marketed accordingly. Yeah. You know, if it's a good thing that people want and it's employing people here, like, I, I, I support that. Um, but yeah, going back to what I agree with Kevin completely, I think it's cool to see that in wine specifically, uh, and, and for obvious reasons that we've discussed already, you know, there is that, you know, that real uh, draw towards, you know, things that are like grown in a place like that's where it's from. Yeah. And um, it, so is the the canned wine, is that mainly what you have distributed everywhere or are your bottles distributed uh, to those places also? Bottles as well, particularly the Pet Nats or the Ancestral Method Sparkling Wines, because, um, you know, that's something we've been doing for quite a few years now. And we were on the uh, the front end of that, H- that ancient trend, okay. you know, what's old is new again. And, uh, you know, we have, you know, we're all in on this particular style and it happens to be on trend again in, you know, uh, uh, wine markets really around the world but in in you know those more granola crunchy places in the u.s have a big appetite for these natural wines that aren't manipulated that's um i one thing i want to say i i love that you have talked about and described wine this whole time for an hour now and not once that i want to roll my eyes um it's that like i watched the movie psalm yeah and the whole time i'm watching it's like shut up yeah it does not taste like a new garden hose or (laughs) whatever like just the a litany of pretentious ways they did so i want to thank you for that um the wine was absolutely delicious uh so you have changed my mind about my opinions on wine sure um now before we finished i did warn you we're starting a new tradition today. I'm excited. Uh, two weeks ago, I went to McClintock and we made a hop infused single malt whiskey, which it won't be able to be called a single malt because of the hops being in it. But we took seven pounds of UK Golding and Meridian hops. It's and so green on the nose. Very. Oh yeah, very much. It's almost offensive. Um, <laughs> and. And I was actually beforehand, like I opened it up and smelled it for the first time since it was first distilled. I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to make him experience this because <laughs> it, it'll be so much better in a year and a half. <laughs> um, so that we took a seven pounds of hop, that blend of hops, put them in the gin basket and then vapor infused them into a 100% chocolate single malt mash. Um, I'll be curious. This will be my first time tasting it since it came off the still. Uh, cheers. Cheers. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's a little different than it first was, but it's still... You said chocolate. Yeah. So, I mean, this comes through. Oh, yeah. it's Distinctly. Yeah. So, straight off the still, like when we were t- taking our finger and tasting it, we're like it tastes like chocolate-covered bananas. It's crazy how strong the chocolate flavor in it is. Um and it's still it's it's actually still pretty good tasting for only being well not aged at all just sitting in a bottle. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for sharing. Welcome. So I'm I'm honored um, to have been the first in this long uh, in, in this sure to be long standing tradition. Well, it, I mean, this bottle will definitely not be drank other than these little thimble shots of it. So this will last a while. The lucky person will be the first guest that gets to try the finished product. Nice. 
Um, so actually, though, I still have I have a group of questions I ask everyone. So I'll ask you two. Well, one, do you drink craft beer at all? Sure. So what is your favorite Maryland craft beer? Oh man, or one good. of your favorite? You know. One of my favorite, my my go-to. I'm I'm a sour beer guy, uh, just like you had mentioned. Uh, really like the sour chica, uh, and really like the old pros. I love uh, old pro. Um, the is one of my favorites. It's and it's, the, it's a go-to. Um, I, I I like the old pro as even opposed to the older pros. Like I like the old pro. It's just like it's it's a go-to. Have I you mean, had the tea times? Sure have. Those yeah, are, those yep. are at the very top of my list of favorites. Absolutely. Have so yep. I can agree with the you, you, right answer. Correct. <laughs> um, and then I, I didn't look at any reviews or ratings, but have you ever received an absolutely just ridiculous review? And what was it? Oh my goodness. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. So you get these Yelp reviews. And well, actually, like I that. guess wineries are probably very susceptible to that. Oh my goodness. Because yeah. of the nature of I mean, I love everyone, but your stereotypical wine fan. But like, anytime I ask a distillery, the first couple of times they would say no, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. And I'd look up five stars, everything. So, what is the the worst review you ever received that you just looked at and you're like, come on? I I mean, so uh, so I'll I'll answer this to it. One, um, I, I you know we have uh, you know there's been a, a really great overarching response yeah. to what we're doing however like anything else uh we are not immune to just like those like h- horrible bashing you know reviews on yelp where someone feels you know this person that's never done anything before feels empowered yeah. you know to get behind the keyboard and then just you know whatever say how they felt about everything <laughs> you know um but but like one thing that, that so like our strategy for managing these is like we just ignore it it's yeah. like you know just say thank you for the positive reviews and just ignore the negative ones because there's so much negativity in the world. It's like, you just can't like, yeah, you're I'm not, not going to spend my, mind. my energy, you know, for working on this person. But there is a, a, a wine producer that I really love called element winery up in the finger lakes. And they have a strategy where every time they get a one star review on any platform, they print it, uh, they frame it and they hang it in their bathrooms nice. and they call it. The, so when you go into their bathroom, the walls are just like literally coated from, from ceiling to floor with all of the most horrible reviews. See, now have. that would just it's encourage hilarious. me to do that. Yeah. But it's so funny. Like, yeah. I love it. It's like, they wear it as a badge of honor. It's yeah. like here in our bathrooms, you can read all the terrible things that people have said about us. <laughs> yeah. I've always wanted to do that, but it, maybe it just didn't fit. Yeah. So what was, what was the most ridiculous one? The most so ridiculous can... review. Um, oh my goodness! Um, pff, ridiculous. Uh, just like um, someone uh, came out to our tasting room one time and basically said that uh, you know all the wines were too sweet and that the staff didn't know anything about the wines and that uh, you know I, I don't know that we uh, that we that they brought their dog and they didn't know they weren't allowed to bring their dog. I, I, I can't think of a good. Uh, e- example but it mostly it's the i ignore them yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's the short answer um but it, it usually has something to do when someone like tears you up for something that's not true like all the wines were too sweet and it's like you're writing a review of another winery right now i yeah. have no idea what you're talking and about I, I, unless you've brought every single one of your uh wines that are not sweet that, <laughs> and, it's, no. and everything else is like <laughs> drinking grape juice um the, they were wrong. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's the most frustrating is, is when you get a scathing review that is inaccurate. Yeah. yeah. 
But it's, I, I've mentioned it many times. People are probably tired of me hearing it, but my favorite one ever is Old Mother Brewing. That theirs was started out with, have you ever been someplace that you just know won't be around in a year? And then it just went on to pick apart every aspect of the place. Wow. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming out and opening my mind to enjoying wine. Um, I definitely enjoyed all four of them. I think I've settled on one uh, as my favorite. Um, thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. And thank you again to our new supporting sponsor, Caps. Be different, look different. For more information, visit capsbottles.com. Cheers. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening.